I remember as an elementary school boy, one of my mentors loved investments, and he thought it was really important that kids learn about investing. So as a third or fourth grader, I was given these books by him about investments, stocks and bonds and and mutual funds and all these sorts of things, and I kind of took a liking to it. I figured out, hey, here's ways that I can make money even when I'm not doing anything. That sounds like a good plan. And so I started trying to convert my, my lawn mowing money into stocks and to, you know, savings bonds that my aunts or uncles gave me for my birthday into various investments. And it was all going great until one fateful day. I'll never forget in August of 2000, some of you may remember this, uh, most of my investments were in Eli Lilly and company and they lost their patent for one of their leading drugs. I think it was Prozac about <clears throat> three years before they were supposed to lose it. And their stock plummeted over 30% in one day. And for the, you know, the seventh grade version of myself, that was devastating. I lost $500. So I realized, man, if I'm going to be in this, this stock business here, I got I to gotta start doing some more research. I got to get more serious about this. So I go to the library and I'd read the Investor's Business Daily and start figuring out, you know, how, how are we going to know more about these investments and diversify and all this sorts of thing. And so I started doing more research and getting more involved in it and started to make more money. And, and the words kind of started to get out. And before too long, and I know this will be difficult for you to believe, but I promise you I'm not lying when I say this. I was managing in high school multiple people in our church's retirement portfolios. We'll render judgment about that another day. But, uh, <laughs> but, but what I quickly learned what I quickly learned from is that they had a few expectations for me. They wanted me to have sound investing principles, that we were were working with companies with a good foundation, a good plan for long-term growth. It wasn't just merely this kind of risky day trading stuff. Like, we we wanted sound investing principles. But they also wanted to see a fruitful uh, result. They wanted to see return on investment. They wanted to see profits, not just some 17-year-old that could talk about P.E. ratios, diversification, and 52-week highs and lows. Right? They wanted to see actual fruit coming here. You might say they wanted me to be faithful to sound investing principles and fruitful in what they actually saw coming in. And then that sort of symmetry, the, the faithfulness and the fruitfulness is a parallel to what Jesus lays out here in Luke 19. You might summarize the, the sermon in this simple sentence. Jesus' followers invest the gospel faithfully and fruitfully. There's a faithful way that we're called to invest the gospel that's been entrusted to us, just as I was called to faithfully invest this money for these folks, and there's a fruitfulness that's expected as Jesus' disciples invest the gospel all throughout their life. That's what we see here in Luke 19. I do want to be clear at the beginning, and we say Jesus' followers invest the gospel, what we're saying by that. The gospel I sometimes summarize in four quick statements just to say that God is holy, I am not. Jesus saves, and Christ is my life. That there is a God who is holy, made the entire universe, everything in it, he made it all good. He is morally perfect, set apart from the rest of any other being or creature or created thing. None is like him. And we are not like him. We are limited. We are finite. He's infinite. We turn and go our own way. We are filled with moral flaws. We're marred by sin is what the Bible calls that. When we turn and go our own way instead of following his way. And because we are not holy, we've separated ourselves from God. No way of bringing ourselves back into a relationship with him. 
and yet we're not without hope because although God is holy and we are not, Jesus saves. He came to this earth and lived the perfect life that none of us lived and died the death that we should have died to bring us back to God, to save us. And as a result, then Christ becomes our life. Maybe you're here and you haven't heard that before or you have heard it and haven't believed it. But before we say anything about how Jesus' followers are called to invest the gospel faithfully and fruitfully, the first step for you to, is to believe that message, that God is holy, you are not, yet Jesus saves and Christ can become your life. I hope you'll consider that and ask Jesus to save you this morning if you've not already done that. What I want to do relative to this parable here is to give a little bit of background information on the parable and then pull out four key lessons for investing the gospel both faithfully and fruitfully. So, so in the parable, there's a few characters, right? There's the nobleman. There are these servants that are entrusted to Minas. There are the citizens. So the nobleman represents Jesus. He's there, he leaves, and he's going to come back and rule over his kingdom. You can see the clear parallel there. The, the, uh, the servants represent Christians. Something has been entrusted to them while the nobleman leaves. They're given a mission, engage in business until I come, and you'll be receiving a reward when the nobleman comes back. And then third are these other citizens, the citizens who hate the nobleman. They hate the king. They resist his rule and his reign over the kingdom. And that represents the unbelieving world around us. So those are kind of your three characters and what they represent. And then there are these, these minas. What do these represent? We notice that each servant gets one of them. Ten servants, ten minas, one mina per servant. So everybody gets the same thing, is, is the point that I'm, I'm making there. The mina represents the gospel. The gospel is entrusted to you as a Christian to invest it both faithfully and fruitfully. This parable is a little bit different than the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. The parable of the talents kind of is an emphasis on different gifting given to different individuals. Five talents to some, two to others, one to others. And it seems to be saying in that parable, hey, as you've been given different gifts, different abilities, different skills, invest them as well as you can. This is a little different, saying everyone has received the same thing. You've received the gospel. Now go out and invest it both faithfully and fruitfully. So there's a bit of backstory there of kind of understanding the lay of the land as we come to Luke 19. Let's then pull out four lessons for investing the gospel faithfully and fruitfully from what we see here in Luke 19. Here's the first lesson. Lesson number one, you must live as a steward. You must live as a steward. Look back at verse 11 of Luke 19 with me. Verse 11 reads, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he tells them this parable that they thought the kingdom of God was coming right now, that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem where he would set up his kingdom. It would happen right away. And he says, no, I'm going to tell you a story to reorient your expectations you're not merely going to kind of ride in on my coattails, I conquer everything, and then you just kind of follow behind me. I'm going to give you a role of stewardship, to be a steward of what I've entrusted to you, and you've actually got a job here. So he's saying, you've got to have a little bit different perspective. Let me redefine your role. Verse 12, Luke 19. He says, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
calling ten of his servants. He gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So to say that we live as a steward is to, is to be different then, to differentiate it from not an owner. Or you're stewarding what's been, giving, what's been given to you. You don't own what's been given to you. I think too often we, we walk around claiming ownership of things in our lives that we don't actually own. We've been called to steward things. It's almost like, if you remember in Finding Nemo, that scene on the pier where the seagulls are all around going, mine, mine, mine. Remember that? That's how we walk around our whole lives, saying mine, 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 on stuff we have no business claiming as our own. There are things that God owns that he's entrusted to us. Maybe you see that in a parable form here in Luke 19 or in a pop culture reference in Finding Nemo or simply in 1 Corinthians 6, clear teaching, you are not your own for you were bought with a price, is what Paul would write. Right? We are to live as stewards. And this means that we don't have the kind of authority that an owner has. We carry out the wishes of the owner but we don't possess that kind of ultimate authority over the things that have been entrusted to us. Now, sometimes that might feel a bit restrictive. Right? Like, man, I, I'm always within somebody else's constraints. I can't go do my own thing. Is that, sh should I feel bound by that? And I think we shouldn't. We should actually see it as liberating. Because if you're the steward, what that means is you don't have to come up with all kinds of investment capital. That's the owner's job. It's harder to come up with billions to invest than it is to find a good plan for those billions. You don't have to find something unique about yourself or this remarkable idea or strategy. That's not been given to you as your job. Like, no, no, no. All that's already been decided for you. Merely entrust or merely steward what has been entrusted to you. And what this does is it frees us, living as a steward frees us to embrace the ordinary. It frees us to steward little things. So everybody's interested in, in changing the world and maybe not that many people are interested in making their bed. You've maybe heard that kind of a phrase before. It's like, man, when, when the great news of Jesus Christ has been entrusted to me, I don't have to have the pressure of doing everything and creating a grand new plan. I see what's right in front of me, what's been entrusted to me, and I'll be faithful with that. I mean, you even think about just stewarding the, the most ordinary of ordinary things in your life. Every week, I take out the trash on Tuesday night. Well, most weeks. Every now and again, I forget that, right? And you guys are like that. And, and I was thinking, well, what does it look like to steward something so simple and mundane as that? But just to recognize, maybe you build a habit into your life. As I take the trash out, I'm also going to remember to confess sin to God. Because if I don't take the trash out in my personal life, my life's going to start to stink. And I might get away with forgetting to take the trash out, you know, for a week, but two, three, four, like, you could tell yourself it's not going to be a problem, but that chicken starts piling up in the outside trash can, and that's a mess. It starts to stink. So I steward the ordinary rhythms and say, here's a reminder to myself and to my kids to make confession a regular part of my life. You're, you're out at night, and it's a beautiful summer night. So you can stay, you can look up, you can see the stars. You steward that and then see, man, I see sometimes, we've talked about this, the moon, sometimes I see all of it, sometimes I see part of it. But a simple stewardship of the evenings, I can look out and see, boy, I don't always see all of the moon, but I know the moon is always round. 
And I don't always see the goodness of God. Sometimes it seems to be a dark season, but I remember that he's always good even if I don't see it. And in the most ordinary of ways, we steward the gospel and remind ourselves of it and remind those around us of it. You say, Justin, these seem to be awfully minute little things. Aren't there bigger things you're going to call us to? I'd remind you of, of Luke 16, what Jesus said. He who's been faithful in little will also be faithful in much, and he who's dishonest in little will also be dishonest in much. Hudson Taylor was one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Took the gospel to China, pioneered the gospel, going internationally when it had not been done before. We look back on a guy like Hudson Taylor and say, wow, how could I ever have faith like him? How could I ever have courage like him? How could I ever go into a close country like him? He did big things, right? And yet, what did Hudson Taylor say? You see it on the screen here. He says, a little thing is just a little thing. But faithfulness in a little thing is a great thing. But living as a steward means we recognize the little things and we're faithful to steward the gospel in daily, mundane ways, as well as in big ways, not despising the small things, but recognizing it takes great faith to be faithful even in the little things, and God will be glorified in our lives. It's not just an individual stewardship we've been given, though. Stewarding the gospel as a church is really significant. When we see ourselves as, as stewards, it regulates our methods as a church, it can be tempting to, to seek things that will sort of pump up the numbers and give speedy results. And it, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of work to look out into the business world and see ways that seeking numbers too quickly and falsely inflating them gets us in trouble. You just think back to the, the 08 uh, bubble that burst, you know, was that 15 years ago now? It was the Lehman Brothers that despite having 25,000 employees... They went bankrupt. They had 700 billion, with a B, dollars in assets, and yet went bankrupt. Because they had seen, here are ways we can pump up our numbers in the short term without thinking as long-term stewards of what's been given, and it cost them dearly. And as a church, it's important that we think of a long-term stewardship of the gospel, not merely saying what's going to help things look better in the next two months, but think for two generations from now, how do we build disciples that will have a rootedness in their faith? It's the difference between choosing methods that will draw crowds first and foremost or methods that will build disciples, like I said, with this generational strength. This is where I, we would advocate for giving money to other church plants in our city. That might be a little counterintuitive. Like, yeah, let's give to go to the ends of the earth, but in our own city? Aren't those competition? Like, no, there are more churches needed in Indianapolis, more lost people needing to hear the gospel. And living as a steward frees us to do that as a church. Say, Justin, we're, we're going to really take two years to go through the book of Genesis? It's kind of a long time for a really old book. Couldn't we... Pick up the pace a little bit here? Like, no, that's part of stewarding the gospel. It'll take a long time. We'll come back to it in a couple of months. Next month, rather. You think about what it takes to operate a Christian school. Right? There, there's a lot of investment needed. It, it adds organizational complexity in a lot of ways. But we think it is a wise way to steward the gospel so that the next generation can be taught to think from a biblical worldview. 
There's all kinds of ways as a church that, that thinking as a steward, living as a steward, it regulates our methods so that we're stewarding for the long haul, not merely what we see as these short-term gains. I think the difficulty for all of us in living as a steward, both individually and corporately, is that we're just not satisfied with little things that much. We want something new, something shiny that grows quickly and it grabs our attention. But a faithful and a fruitful investment of the gospel requires that we live as stewards, not owners. That changes our perspective. Because the king is coming back and we're merely investing and stewarding what he's entrusted to us. That brings us to the second lesson. Second lesson, trust the master. We must trust the master. The reality is this. You'll only live as a steward if you trust the master. If you don't trust the master, you'll either go and do your own thing or you'll find somebody else to follow. But trust is absolutely critical for living as a steward. And what Luke 19 shows us is that this question of trusting the master applies both to believers and to unbelievers. So, so look back at verse 14. We see this trusting the master applied to unbelievers first. Verse 14 we read, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. Now notice what they don't do. They don't deny the nobleman's existence. They don't deny God's existence at times. They don't deny the nobleman's claims that he says you ought to live in this way and steward your life in this way. No, it's a matter of the will. They say, we simply don't want this man to reign over us. And all around us, don't we see this happening? See our world saying, I don't want you to reign over my self-definition, God. I don't want you to reign over how I perceive my sexuality, how you define my gender, how you define who I am ethnically or racially. We see people all over the place saying, God, I don't want you to reign over my leisure time, over my relationships. I don't want you to reign over my finances. It's a matter of the will. So what this reminds us of is that as people often will bring intellectual objections, there are real questions that need real thoughtful answers, but usually those are not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is this matter of the will, where we're saying, I don't want God to reign over me. So when it comes to our friends who have questions about Christianity, what seem like more intellectual objections, what do we do with those? Well, we answer them, and we answer them patiently and graciously and gently. But we also recognize that there's a person struggling to trust that God is good, that they can follow him. And so we remember to see the person behind the argument, not just the argument. There's a, a person to be gained, not an argument to be won, might be a different way of saying that. We keep all of that in mind. Then we drop down to verse 20, and this question of trusting the master is also applied to believers. Look down at verse 20 with me. We read, Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Uh, this, this man was a servant, it says, so it appears that he was a Christian, 
but he didn't take action and blamed it on the master's character. He says, I'm not sure if I can trust you, therefore I won't take action. You see the kind of the underlying logic of that. Friends, to trust the master is to take risks for the master. Let me say that again. To trust the master is to take risks for the sake of the master. And and I'll explain that a bit more in just a minute in our third point. But for right now, there's a reality that as Christians, we often have questions about trusting the master. You may have decided at one point, Jesus, I do believe that you are God, that God is holy, I am not Jesus, you save and Christ is my life. But that doesn't mean that as a Christian you no longer have doubts or things that you work through with respect to your faith. So what does the Bible say about this? Well, it certainly says don't punt on your questions. Jude 1 verse 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. There's an expectation that along the way we're going to have doubts. And the Bible says having doubts doesn't mean you should be kicked to the curb, but that we work through those questions together. There's a phrase that's been used throughout church history. It's this, it's faith while seeking understanding. I have faith in what God is doing while I'm simultaneously seeking understanding and answers to what's going on. In other words, I don't have all my questions answered yet, partially because God is infinite and I'm finite and there are some things that I'll just never fully piece together. And so if I wait to have all my questions answered, I'll forever be paralyzed and never go anywhere. Some of the questions I may get answered. I may figure it out through more wrestling. But I'm not going to delay obedience for a year or a decade until I get it answered. So I have faith while also seeking understanding. What that means, and this is really good news, is that Christianity does not ask you to check your brain at the door. It says, no, engage your brain, engage the intellect, seek the answers to your questions. But don't also use your brain and your intellect and your questions as an excuse to not take a step of obedience. They go together. You see, this question that we're talking about, do you trust the master, is by far the most fundamental question of your life. Do you trust the master and will you take steps of obedience, risky steps at times, for the master? Do you trust that God is who he says he is, that he's good, even when some parts of the Bible are difficult to believe? Let me remind you, to trust the master is not merely to give lip service to his rule and to his reign and to his existence, but to submit to his rule and take active steps of obedience for his reign. So the first lesson for faithfully and fruitfully investing the gospel, the first lesson is that I live as a steward, not as the owner. The second lesson is that I must trust the master even when I still have questions, even when things don't make sense. I have faith while seeking understanding. And this brings us to the third lesson. Lesson number three, invest with boldness. The first two are kind of foundational matters that we have to wrestle with and grapple with in our hearts. But if we're going to faithfully and fruitfully invest the gospel, as all of Jesus' followers are called to do, then we must invest with boldness. Look at verse 16 with me. We read, The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And verse 18 dropped down. 
And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. You see, the focus on what we read here is on the gospel's fruitful return, not on the investor or the steward's giftedness. What does it say? Let's read this more closely. Go right back to it, verse 16. The first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. Now, what does it not say? It doesn't say, Lord, I earned 10 more minas for you. It doesn't say, Lord, my investment strategy worked beautifully and I've earned this for you. It doesn't say, look how we strategize. It says, no, your mina, the gospel has brought this return. Every single mina that's invested in this parable brings a return. There's a confidence in the return that's going to come. This is why in other parts of the Bible you see a similar thing being said. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God. Not the gospel contains the power of God. Not the gospel tells me about the power of God. Not the gospel points me to the power of God. No, the gospel is the power of God. The Greek word is where you get the word dynamite from. The gospel is the dynamite of God. Your heart feels hard and stony. I don't know how we're going to break through this. Stick of gospel dynamite in there. That is the power of God to change people's hearts, both believers and unbelievers. Isaiah 55 would say the word of God does not return void. It always accomplishes its intended purpose. And when there's real power and a guaranteed return, it absolutely changes your perspective. Let me tell you a story about this. I, I had a friend who loved investing in Bitcoin. It's fallen on hard times of late. But about six months ago, he had a massive return on his investment. And uh, he was doing great. And he told me, he said, Justin, if I cash out right now, I could pay off my house. Wow, you've done really well. He says, but, but the thing is, I have confidence. This isn't going to end. This is, the, this is the future. What I'm really considering is taking out a second mortgage on my home and putting it all in Bitcoin. I said, don't do that. It's not a secure return, but he thought that it was. And because he was convinced of the certainty of the return, it totally changed his perspective that what felt crazy to me, and based on your reaction to many of you, didn't feel crazy to him. He said, no, this is just a bold investment because the, the return is sure. And when it comes to how we invest the gospel, I fear that many of us have less confidence in the gospel than my friend had in Bitcoin. We think that the return isn't sure, and so we hold back in the way that we invest. So what does this look like? What does a investing boldly actually mean? Well, let me talk about a couple of ways here. Let me think, first off, invest boldly in daily conversations. What does it look like to boldly invest the gospel in daily conversations? Well, maybe it's simply this. I'm going to invite somebody persistently to come and read the Bible with me. Sometimes we say in our conversations, well, so-and-so knows that I'm a Christian. So-and-so knows that I go to church. I try to drop that in. And that's good that people know you're a Christian, and it's good that they know that you go to church. But would we say that is a bold investment in daily conversation? Or say, hey, I've been reading the Bible. God has blessed me through that. I feel like it, it just strengthens me spiritually. Would you be willing to read a chapter of the Bible with me this week? 
whether someone's a believer, whether they're not, that's a bolder step that says, I have confidence in this book to actually change lives. I was talking to a guy this week who told me that a friend of his had said, I would encourage you to consider this passage of Scripture that has impacted my life recently. This was a believer I was talking to. And he said, you know what? It challenged my thinking to have a guy say to me, I'm not sure you're living in light of this passage. Would you read it and pray over it? He said, but I was glad that somebody would take that bold step. Because the reality is he was right, and as I've been thinking on God's word, it's got me rethinking how I'm doing some things. Friends, that doesn't happen. That is iron sharpening iron that's growing through relationships, and it doesn't happen if we aren't boldly investing the gospel and boldly investing the word of God in daily conversations. It means we take seriously Colossians 1.28 that says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Is that true of you? That Jesus you're proclaiming, you're warning and you're teaching that you may present everyone in your sphere of influence mature in Christ. If we say in Psalm 119 that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path then why don't we act on it? If we say that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, then why don't we go to it? Why don't we invest more boldly? It goes back to before, that we think we're the owner and we can do it our way, or we don't trust the master that his word is actually good. There's all kinds of boldness in just daily conversations, stewarding everyday parts of life, that we need to lean into. There, there, there's boldness in our financial investments, aren't there? There's all kinds of ways we're called to invest financially. And the reality is for all of us, your pastors included, that giving to God's kingdom and to the church can sometimes feel like a duty. Sometimes feels that way, doesn't it? Like this is kind of what's required. I'm gonna check the box. I don't wanna be checkbox in my thinking, but it's kind of that way. You say, pastor, what am I supposed to do? How much am I supposed to give? We don't mean to say what's the minimum requirement, but that kind of floats around in our mind at points. But that line of thinking that we all face takes us back to the last question, do I actually trust the master that this is a good investment? It requires us to think through what Jesus said in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but no, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break up or break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I love that last little phrase. That has helped me so much in my own personal life. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, sometimes I don't feel like investing boldly. Anybody been there? Like, yeah, I don't feel like that right now. But I take a step of obedience in faith, knowing that my heart will follow where my treasure is. It's another way we invest boldly. But there's also a bold investment in how we use our talents, isn't there? How do I boldly invest those and steward the gospel? Whether it be serving out in Northwest Community Park or on the worship team or on the missions committee. In business terms, to take up these opportunities, there is an opportunity cost. If you're here doing something, you're losing the opportunity to be somewhere else. So you'd better be sure that it's a good investment 
It's the right way to steward the 168 hours you have this week. Otherwise, you would be very foolish. Don't mean to be blunt or harsh in the matter. It's just kind of the facts of life. There's only so many hours. Let's be wise in how we use them. Maybe you hear that and you think, Justin, I, I, I do wonder how I could more boldly invest my talents and my skills in the advance of the gospel at Parkside. That'd be a great conversation for you to have, perhaps with myself or one of our pastors. Say, man, I want to be a faithful steward. I want to trust the master and invest boldly with everything God has given to me. Here's the thing about bold investments. When I embrace the first two lessons, when I embrace those first two, that I'm a steward and that I can trust the master, bold investments become liberating become absolutely liberating. But without those two, trying to invest boldly is basically trying to prove my spirituality. I'm a good enough person. I'm a good enough Christian, and it's absolutely anxiety-inducing. And the reason I bring that up is to say this. When I start to talk about boldly investing in daily conversations or in finances or in, in talents or in any other whole host of ways, if you start to feel that little bit of recoil within yourself, like, I don't know, I don't like how my blood pressure kind of spiked when he said that, that's an indicator. Say, look, let's go back to these prior basic things. Who's the owner? Who's the steward? Can he be trusted? Is he really good? And maybe your action point this morning is not first to talk about how you need to invest more boldly, but come back to the character of God. He's the creator and the owner of it all. That he's good and can be trusted. The gospel really is the power of God. And as I meditate on those things, the bold investment flows out of it. And then it's liberating because if people think I'm silly... Well, it doesn't matter because I've already answered who the owner is and who I trust, right? These things bring us finally to the fourth and final lesson for investing the gospel both faithfully and fruitfully. Lesson number four, recognize the gravity. Recognize the gravity. You see verses 20 through 27 on the screen, and I'm actually going to read all eight of those verses because uh, it's kind of a longer section at the end. Let's read those together and then look at this, this fourth and final lesson starting in verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him, give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. He said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But the, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. But that, that last phrase about God's enemies being brought and slaughtered in front of him, that's hard to read for us, isn't it? Kind of cringe a little bit there. But what's important for us to recognize and to see is that failing to take Christ's rule and his reign seriously is a matter of life and death recognize the gravity here. 
And there's a lot of questions that come up in this little section, aren't there? What does this mean? What does that mean? Let me start with a couple of the positive ones that, that come up as we're reading that, and then talk about some of the ones that are a little more negative, a little more difficult to process. Notice this. These cities are given as a reward. So there's one mina that's invested, and it turns into five or ten. Now, a mina was like three months' salary. So three months' salary, one turning into five minas is a little over a year. Ten minas is about two and a half years' worth of income. That's a pretty hefty return on investment. Any of us would take that, especially these days, right? But then that little bit, one into five, one into ten, turns into ten cities, which is just exponential growth there. In essence saying, as you are investing the gospel faithfully, you will see a portion of fruitful response in this life. But when the king comes back, you're gonna recognize the, the investment brought a return that's exponentially greater than anything you ever saw. Recognize the opportunity given to you. Or if somebody came to you saying, I can promise this kind of investment, you would mortgage the house literally to put it in that investment. Recognize the gravity of the opportunity that the Lord is saying, look, you get to be part of what I'm doing. You get to experience the joy. Don't miss that. The reward greatly exceeds the effort. Right? Because yes, we work towards these things, but there's a sovereign God who's working and making it go and making the seed grow, and we rejoice in that. But there's not only kind of the positive questions that come up. There's, there's some difficult questions in this section as well. Most notably, what's the deal with this third servant? It says he was condemned. It says the mina was taken from him. So we ask, was, was this guy really a Christian? Was the gospel taken away? Like, did he lose his salvation? Is that what that means? We're, we're trying to figure this out. I think it's important to recognize, first off, what is the kind of uh, literature that we're reading here in the Bible. It's a parable. So you read a parable a little bit differently than you would read a theological treatise like the book of Romans. Right, we understand that. So there's not a point being made of someone lost their salvation. If you're saved by the blood of Jesus, you will for always be saved. You cannot lose your salvation. Okay, sometimes we say once saved, always saved. I've, I've told you I prefer the language of once saved, always following. I think that actually mirrors what's being told here. But the parables are often given as an invitation to the reader. You'll recall back when we were in the parable of the two lost sons, there's a, the, the reader is to identify with the elder brother, and at the end, the reader is sort of invited into the story of, are you going to respond in faith or not? I think that's what's happening here, is we're to identify as this third servant and say, the gospel's been entrusted to you, what are you doing with it? It's a reminder that Jesus' followers invest the gospel faithfully and fruitfully. Notice this. In the parable, the nobleman doesn't argue about his character. Right? The guy says, hey, you can't be trusted because you're doing all these bad things. And the nobleman doesn't argue with him and defend himself for two reasons. One, the charge is frivolous. But the charges of character aren't the point. It's the intellectual smokescreen for the matter of the will underneath that I didn't want to take risks for you because I didn't trust you. You see this in living color here. What we see kind of in modern day, how this sort of living is played out, is there are some people, professing Christians, who live their life as a sort of Christian bomb shelter. 
to hole up and protect themselves from everything in the outside world, and there's no real engagement with the lost. They seem to have lost sight of Jesus' words in Matthew 16, where he said to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You don't get the picture of Jesus saying, we're just going to kind of hole up and try and make it until the end times here. No, it's an offensive posture. The gates of hell won't prevail because we are on the move. So I ask this morning, are you a Christian seeking to sort of build a bomb shelter or are you charging up the mountain with the gospel? If your retirement was the gospel, is it more like an aggressive investment portfolio or is it like stacks of cash hidden under your mattress because you're scared of what might happen to it? See, Jesus' point here is that if you're stashing the gospel under the mattress, afraid of what might happen, Catch this, he says, you are likely not even a Christian. It's a sobering word for us to consider. That you might know a lot about the Bible, you might go to church, you might affirm biblical truth about, you know, sexuality and marriage and the sanctity of life and all kinds of things, but is your life characterized by actively and boldly investing the gospel first in your own soul and in your family, and in those around you? Or are you marked by fear of the outside world? Are you marked by passively retreating, protecting the gospel under your proverbial mattress, and hoping that Jesus comes back before everything goes to pot? That's a temptation for us. We must reject it. Don't bury the gospel in the handkerchief like the third servant. Get out on mission. Recognize the gravity here, that there is a real God, who is the real king over all the universe. And all of us are going to meet him one day. Some people get to meet him joyously as their savior, and others are terrified to meet him as their judge. We recognize the gravity that there's a real heaven that is more glorious than anything we could imagine. And there's also a real hell that's more terrifying than anything we could ever imagine. And both of these are filled with real people. And if you're taking the gospel, hiding it under the mattress and burying it in the ground as a handkerchief, Jesus says, this isn't me saying, you are likely on the path to meet him as a judge and it will be terrifying. But investing the gospel faithfully and fruitfully and boldly will always bring a massive return. You see, the message this morning is actually pretty simple to understand. Jesus' followers invest the gospel faithfully and fruitfully. But just because it's easy to understand doesn't mean it's easy to apply, right? That's kind of the trick of it. Well, sure, I, I, I get it when you say it, Justin. It's the doing part that's difficult. <laughs> so this morning, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Identify which of these four lessons do you need to embrace and to heed and to act upon. And for all four of the lessons, the answer is taking yourself back to the person and the work of Jesus. So if you need to live as a steward, you say, Justin, I'm kind of living as an owner of my life, not a steward of these things, then confess that Jesus is the creator, the owner of everything, and it isn't actually yours. Maybe you just need to walk around with your hands open around the house this week, just as a tangible reminder, it's not mine, I'm just a steward. He's the owner. Or if you need to trust the master and you're struggling to trust him, then look back to the cross 
and see his ultimate display of love, that he would give himself, his life, for you to prove that he is trustworthy. And even when I don't understand what's going on, I know that he didn't withhold his blood from me. And so I can follow him because he's always good. But maybe you need to invest more boldly. Say, just I've just kind of been holding back. I'm a little restrictive with it. Then remember how Jesus gave every single drop of his blood. He held nothing back to redeem you so that your bold investment is merely following in how he gave of himself for you. You remember Jesus. Maybe you struggle to recognize the gravity. It's like, just I hear this stuff, I walk out of the church, and I just get so busy with life, and what we're doing for lunch, and where we're going for this and for that, and all these other things, and I forget about the eternal significance of this conversation. For you, you look to Jesus and recognize you came once and you are coming again. Your rule is eternal. Heaven, hell, they are real. And it's time for me to get serious about following Jesus. Guys, this morning's sermon is a call to action for us, isn't it? It's a call to action. So don't hear the preaching of God's word and walk out without a plan for how you are going to put it into practice in your life. We're going to have a few minutes of silence in a minute, and that's a chance for you to reflect on that, to confess where you are not living as a steward, where you are not trusting the master, where you're not living boldly, where you're not recognizing the gravity, and to ask for God's grace. The gospel to penetrate your heart, to be the dynamite of God and blow up your hard heart. And then tell somebody. Talk to a spouse, talk to a family member. Maybe you want to talk to me afterwards. It's just, I, I want to put this into practice. Can you help me think through what this looks like? would love to do that, but don't leave without doing business with God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth. You lived the life that we couldn't live. You died the death we should have died to redeem us. We thank you that you are the owner and we are not, but we thank you that we get to steward the gospel that you've entrusted to us. We ask for your grace that we would trust you, your strength, and for faith to see that the return on investment is sure and we can boldly invest. And we ask for eyes to see the gravity of where we're at here. May we not overlook these spiritual realities. Jesus, we pray that your work on the cross would be real in our hearts. And you would change us by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.